We've been looking at the two chapters in Matthew, the 24th and 25th chapter on Sunday mornings, and exploring the purpose of why Christ gives this teaching to his disciples. It's clearly to correct maybe some imbalanced reasoning and thinking that they had as they were so fixated on the, the externals of worship with their temple that uh, was so grand and so glorious as far as not only an edifice, uh, a structure of grand architecture, uh, but also what it represented as a place of gathering, a place where there was solidarity for their religion, which of course helped create a cohesiveness for them as a people. And they desperately wanted that, clung to that, especially since they were being uh, also simultaneously usurped by the Roman government, in which uh, was present even in the sacred city of Jerusalem for them. And so this was something that they really were very, very attached to. And so Jesus, you might remember, uh, begins by letting them know that there's coming a time that 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 temple, as great as they might think it is, is going to be dismantled. And that should not be their primary focus, but instead be looking forward to his second coming. Which reminds us that it always comes back to the person of Christ, doesn't it? If we don't get to him, if we don't focus on the Lord in our life, whatever it is, then we're off mark with regard to our approach to our Christian life, how we're encouraging other people, even in our evangelism of the lost. Uh, There's a lot of things that are in the Bible that we do and should include. There's nothing there that uh, isn't essential, but all of it, even Jesus said to those two disciples that were with him on the road to Emmaus right after his resurrection, uh, you know, he began at Moses and he expounded all those things concerning himself. It's all, the point is, the scripture is about Jesus. And so we need to always point people and ourselves, for that matter, to the person of Christ and be excited about the prospects of not just his first advent when he came as a, as a baby in the virgin birth, but as he is coming again, and we know that that's quite certain. And that's what is the topic of these two chapters. But it also deals with a lot of tribulation that will be upon the earth that will precede and surround his second coming when it happens. And yet, the message seems to be While we are surrounded by tribulation, we don't have to necessarily feel troubled. We may be in the midst of trouble, but that doesn't mean that we have to be troubled. We we recognize that we operate on the grace of God, at least that's what we're supposed to do, and that grace empowers us to not be swayed so much by our circumstances. Christ is in us as our hope of glory, the Bible tells us. We continue as we talk about this, have looked at a cup, one parable that Jesus gave uh, two weeks ago, and we're going to follow that up as he does. Right on the heels of that, he follows it with a, another parable, another illustration, if you would, of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. 
As Brother Green read for us this morning, Jesus tells this story uh, that has uh, an illustrative message uh, for us that touches the second coming of Christ, but it also talks about how we, as people on earth, need to be anticipating that, what we need to be doing. The previous one was about the virgins and how they, they failed to be waiting properly. They, half of the group did not come with the oil that they needed in their lamps, and while they were gone, the bridegroom came and they were excluded. In this one, we have a a master who's going on a journey, he has some servants. The implications are that the servants had been in his employ in service probably for quite some time, maybe. Uh, we don't know, but maybe they had different tenure. Some of them may have been with him longer than others. And he is going to divvy out to them some of his resources to be caretakers of in his absence. In connection with what's going on here, there is the repealing of the money when he returns. He's asking for it back. And for two of the three, everything is more or less without too much stress. But they're really the whole account is focused on this one individual who, at least by the end, is in quite a terror-stricken condition, is what we're tried to, uh, Jesus seems to be implying, based on the master's response to him. This terror comes when the talent that has been given to him is, is, is taken back. Now, you know, of course, uh, he, he recognizes through all of this, all the talents belong to the master. They never stop belonging to him, and even the investment return belongs to the master. But as you remember in the reading, uh, the talent that is taken is then handed into the hands of one of the other stewards. Now, if you're like me, as you first read this, the story seems to portray somewhat of a minor infraction. You could read this and, and, and walk away from it with the idea of, did what this man do was it really so bad? Why such a harsh treatment? After all, he, the master didn't lose his principle. You know, is there a conscientiousness on the part of this servant? Was his motive maybe better? And, and maybe there's just a harshness of the master here. Especially when you get down to verse 30 and you see the, the strong consequences of being cast into outer darkness, and of course that is dispelling him from the presence of the master, but and also there is this weeping and gnashing of teeth, so there's definitely almost a torture uh, that is going on here, and that is where you get the idea of the terror that comes into this man's life. And so really, we have to ask ourselves, how does this connect to the second coming of Christ? Where is, where is that meshing in? If all of this is part of Jesus' teaching about his coming, how does that connect in this story? Well, one thing that's happening with the master and his servants is this transmission of talents. 
And so we need to understand a little bit about what a talent is. According to one commentator by the name of Barbieri, he says that, of course, talent was principally a weight, a measurement of weight. Now, we hear the word talent, we think of gifts, abilities, right? You hear someone play the piano or sing, you're like, wow, they're very talented. There's a lot of belief in the etymology of how we get our words is that it may actually go back to this, this weight as far as value is concerned. What, what qualities or gifts or abilities do we possess that are of great value? And we would say someone's talented in those areas. But uh, here is the idea. And, and his uh, belief is, based on research, is that the weight probably equates to somewhere between 60 to 80 pounds of our modern measurement here in the U.S. to a single talent. But it was always, in a case like this, also a reference to monetary value. Of course, if it's a precious metal, and it was probably silver in this day and age. So its value, of course, a heavier weight of silver would be worth quite a bit more. Of course, we, we measure silver not by pounds, but by troy ounces. But I tried to do a little bit of uh, getting equivalent so we could appreciate what are we looking at in today's terminology with what each of these servants would have been given. According to uh, the website calculateme.com, if we take the lower weight, the 60 pounds, so we're making a conservative estimate here, and we're using the current value of silver, that would mean that a single talent, so that the, the least amount that was handed into a servant's hand was about $15,500 in value. So not a paltry amount, right? And then just to do the math for you as you go up, because, you know, he got one, and then there's two, and then there's five talents. So, I mean, the next servant up got about $31,000 worth of principal, and then the highest one would have been $77,500. So he's not just handing him 20 bucks is the idea, right? This is a substantial concern. And we don't know how much his net worth was, but clearly that's not that important for us to understand. But each servant needed to feel the weight of what they were entrusted with in all of this. There are variations, but none of them had a measly amount is the point. Like the previous parable of the virgins, there's a, there's a stress on preparedness. Sometimes it's helpful to kind of connect these two passages together and say, what's similar and what's different? And in both cases, the Lord's definitely trying to pass along the emphasis of be prepared, be prepared. In the first one, be prepared, the groom is coming for the bride, and the virgins need to be ready. In this one, there's a preparedness in a little bit different way. Uh, This adds an emphasis on actively serving while anticipating the return. Passive waiting in this parable is not acceptable. Uh, That's definitely emphasized here. It was not okay for that one servant to stash it away 
and then do whatever he was doing. And we're not told what he was doing. Maybe he was doing other things in the master's home, but he wasn't attending to that which principally the master wanted him to be focused on. And so as we consider the return of Christ, we know it's anticipated. We're all looking for it in different ways, but we're all anticipating it. How should one respond to what God entrusts into our keeping? That seems to be the question that the passage begs, and I believe that the text will answer for us. And so I want to just explore this and make some applications in three different points this morning for us today. And and as we think about how should I respond, I think very first, God is asking us to grasp the importance of what we have previously received in our lives. And the story is being told in a reflection back on this did happen. And it's, it's already occurred, e- even the coming back of the, of the master. And so there, there is some, first of all, some similarity of what is going on between the three servants. And the similarity is regarding ownership. And that's very important. I alluded to this already, but every one of these three servants, what they were handed wasn't really theirs, was it? They recognized, I have a stewardship. I am a caretaker. It belongs to the master. But beyond that, if you look at verse 14, there's also an emphasis that not just what was put into their hands belonged to them, but notice how it describes the master coming to his servants. It doesn't just say his servants, but there's an emphasis of possession here. It says he comes to his what? His own servants. So clearly the text is causing us to see not only did the wealth belong to the master, but the servants belong to them. Those people were his. Some translations will aptly put it that these are actually slaves. I know that in the age of political correctness, we steer away from that term, but we can't deny that slavery did exist in biblical times. And it was very clear that there was a a sense of ownership that was upon Uh, the people that served in that capacity. I think it's interesting that Paul, in relationship to Christ, as he's released from the bondage of sin, delights to refer to himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He doesn't distance himself from that terminology. Uh, He is glad to have as a master and to realize that his will and his life is not his own, to make choices at his own discretion, but that he needs to be constantly coming back to the Lord and say, what would you have me to be doing? How am I supposed to be serving? And so it is. Our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so there is an ownership that is definitely conveyed here. And while the servants did not own the goods in their hands, They were owned by the one who entrusted them to them. People tend to think in reverse, though, don't they? People 
tend to think just the opposite. People often think that what we hold in our hands uh, is our own. And sometimes we have to stop and say, wait, how did I get this? And I remember, you know, even reminding, you know, the children when they would say, I bought this with my own money. Well, great, but where did you get that money? Well, you gave it to me in an allowance, or it was a birthday gift, or some other form. So it was handed to them in that way. Okay, well, let's don't stop there. Where did that come from before that, you know? Uh, Daddy works, but God supplied a job. God supplies the wage. Ultimately, you can always connect the dots back far enough. You come to God as the provider of everything that we possess in our lives. We easily forget that. We need to think of what we hold in our life, not as possessions, but as things that are lent to us and that we need to be good stewards of that. And we also miss the hold of ownership that God has on us too. People sometimes, hopefully not Christians, but lost people often say, you know, I'm my own man. You know, pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Well, again, they're missing the sovereignty of God, His invisible hand in their lives of goodness. Realize that uh, we should be foolish to declare that, that there is no God that made us. I love what Psalm 95, 6 says, in a spirit of worship. So therefore, there is a, an invitation to do this, but there ought to be a joy from inside the worshipee who says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Several weeks ago, I had the, the chore and somewhat delight of replacing a fence on one side of our, our property. It was in desperate need of the old one coming down. It was, it was coming down on its own anyway, but hadn't quite collapsed yet. I had some bracing up, so it needed to be done. But it's a common wood fence, privacy fence, you might say, between me and our one neighbor on the other side. And, you know, for the last several years, you know, some of the pickets would fall off in a heavy, you know, windstorm or something like that, and the, the nails were giving way, and, and so I remember going next door and prepping my neighbor, hey, I'm thinking about replacing this, you know, if it's okay with you, I need to be able to come into your backyard so I can work on this too. Oh, yes, that's great, you know, I think it's wonderful. You know, we've, we, we've seen a couple times that something's fallen off, and, you know, we're just, we're just hesitant to, to do anything. Oh, you know what? If a picket falls off and you want to do that, that's fine. You have my blessing. Well, there was a recognition that I, w- I had put up that initial fence, and therefore I was the owner of it. And so they were not presumptuous to reach in and start taking care of my fence. We understand that idea. If there is a presumption of ownership, it often comes with creation. Now, we don't create like God does, because God creates out of nothing, but a maker nonetheless. That's why humanity resists in in the pride of the human heart, the idea of God being a creator. Well, if I admit that God exists and that He is the creator and that He made me, by logical conclusion, that also implies an ownership of me as well. 
And you're right about that. That's so true. He does own us, doesn't he? But God's children don't begrudge that ownership. As David said, we kneel down in respect and homage and also a joyful praise. I'm thankful that God owns me. I am grateful for that. Just give another illustration. When we built this building, it was kind of a disappointment, if I can put it in that kind of term, when we got ready to hook up the sewer here at the church because there was no sewer line in front of the property here at the time. We looked at the idea of putting in a septic field. That wasn't going to work because the land wouldn't perk. And so we only had one choice, and that was to ask the sewer provider, the utility company, uh, to help us out. Well, uh, because it had to be brought a mile down the road to where we were, uh, they made us responsible for 100% of the cost of doing that, even though they knew they were going to have all the other residents hook up and and benefit from our uh, construction cost of that. But the one thing that happened is they had to put in a, a, a station out here. It's right by the road. Probably many of you have never even noticed it, except when there's something wrong with it. There's a red light that turns on and says that, you know, I need serviced. There's a problem here. And in the arrangement, the one way we did benefit is that while we had to pay to put that in, that the utility company retains ownership of it. I am so glad Anchor Baptist Church doesn't own that because it has broken several times. They've had to replace the grinder and pump station that's down in there, and it is their problem, right? You know what? As a believer, I am so glad that God owns everything about my life and me because He's got the shoulders. He's got the responsibility for that. There's things that I... And rather than begrudge that relationship of him being my maker and my owner, I rejoice in. Thank you, Lord, that this isn't ultimately my problem. And that you're going to be the one that takes care of it. It, See, it's all about perspective, isn't it, folks? And so ultimately, none of these men were pulling change out of their own pockets, so to speak, in what they were doing. doesn't mean we should be uh, mavericks about it and careless about it. In fact, if, if something isn't yours, if you've ever borrowed something from a neighbor, I, I'm always hesitant to do that or from a friend because it's like, you know, if I break my own tool, that's, that's one thing, but I don't want to break this. It doesn't belong to me, right? And so there's a similarity of ownership all, by all three of these individuals. That's one lesson about what they received. There's also a differentiation of the dispersion. That's very clear. In fact, we pick up on that part right away usually. They didn't all get the same amount. Some had more, some had less. According to verse 15, the differentiation was based, and we're even told what the criteria was. It was based on their individual what? Their ability. Which means that the servants had previously demonstrated what? Maybe insightfulness? You know, a good master, a good manager of his wealth and of his household, he's going to be watching his servants. I don't know if they had performance reviews like we do in 
companies today where they come, okay, you know, it's time for your yearly, you know, performance review and, you know, this will go in your file. You know, we understand how that works, but at least in his mind, he was formulating opinions and he was ranking who was the most trustworthy. So maybe some, one of them was more insightful about economics. Uh, maybe he recognized some of them were more industrious. Hey, this guy's always not only up at the right time, he's here 15 minutes early. He's not punching out at the end of the day. Anytime I come by, he's not just quickly looking busy. You know, he, he is busy. Maybe there's dependability or reliability that is demonstrated on an ongoing basis. You know, these are all things that you want to see in a steward, right? And traits like that make the performance of these stewards differ. They're not all alike. Guess what? In, in God's working with humanity, not everybody is equivalent in our abilities, in our reliability, our industriousness, our insightfulness. It's kind of tempting. There's something about our pride that might look at this and know we say, I know I'm not supposed to criticize Scripture or God, but it seems like it's a little unfair, especially we have gone off the board in the idea of equivalency today uh, in our societies and cultures. And everything is supposedly trying to make everybody identical. But you know, when you really examine it, that's not true. They actually are swinging imbalance on the other side. It's a pendulum swing the other direction. And I won't get off on, on that hobby horse, but you understand what I'm saying. But, but there is something inside of us that kind of uh, chafes at seeing this differentiation here. But really, when we say that doesn't seem just, it would actually be unjust to treat everyone identical since they're not identical. If you had an expectation of everybody the same, when they're not the same, that's really what's unfair, isn't it? Should the stronger not carry the heavier load? Right? You know, if I, if, if I, I see, you know, my son-in-law and daughter and their two children leaving our home, you know, and there's some things that they're going to carry... I'm not going to give the heaviest item to my grandson, Josiah. You know, I'm going to look at my strapping son-in-law, you know, Jonathan. It would be unfair, it would be pretty unjust for me to expect little two-and-a-half-year-old Josiah to carry the heaviest weight. Therefore, should the wiser not have more decisions to make? We are not all equipped identically, and it would be cruel to expect identical performance. It's just the way it is, folks. As we see in this parable, we, are not always, we may not always do well with the lesser portion we are even given. I mean, even the guy that here is not considered to be of the highest caliber in the employment of this master, what he is given, he doesn't do a good job with even that, is the whole point. We do need to be careful of griping over the way God divides things as Paul writes to the believers in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, severally as he willeth. 
And I know the context is a, a little bit different there as he's talking about spiritual gifts, but it still represents God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom. And God is not just randomly saying, you know, well, I'll sprinkle a little bit of task over here and I'll sprinkle. God is very precise in what he does. And so if he gives to one believer in the body of Christ a certain spiritual gift, it's because in God's infinite wisdom, he knows that's the person that should have that for whatever reason God has. Or maybe it's a person getting this. But what happens is once we get on the horizontal plane and we're just looking at each other, God always did like you best, is kind of what we think sometimes, right? Well, wait a minute. Don't condescend what God has given to you. It's still a gift of God. What havest thou that thou didst not received? Correct? So we ought to rejoice that we've got anything whatsoever. We ought to thank the Lord for that. And we ought to thank the Lord. He didn't give us something else other than what He wisely chose to give us. You have illustrations in the Bible, sometimes God's people crying out for something that they feel like they want, such as Israel wanting a king. Give us a king like other, so we can be like other nations. Well, you see how that went, right? God does give them that. And we, we can discuss God's sovereignty and that you know, He was always intending to give them a, a king ultimately anyway, but uh, He lets them feel the weight of their pushiness in that situation, in their flesh, of not being content. And, and they're not really rejecting of, of Samuel, but as God tells Samuel, they're really rejecting me. Because I'm the one that is setting out the economy of leadership as it is right now, and they're not content with that, Samuel. We don't want to be like that, but sometimes we, we find ourselves and we need to we need to slap our own little hands like, oh, Lord, forgive me for thinking that way. For think, forgive me for behaving that way. Thank you for what you have given me, and thank you for not giving me something that I might have cried out for and then later regretted that you gave it to me. Well, not only is there the, the grasping the instructions for what we previously have received, what God has put into our life and we right now have, there's also the, the grasping, the need to grasp the instructions for our present utilization. Okay, I've got what I've got now. What am I supposed to be currently doing with what God has put into my hands? And here also, there is an anticipated similarity of response. Now again, this is, as you read the account, you have to understand, based on the end of the story, what should have happened, not what did happen, was that all three would have behaved in a similar fashion in, in certain degree, but didn't. Each servant was expected to put the resources of the master to good use. We understand that. We know this by how the master responded as return. And with the passing of time, the servant's stewardship should make a difference. By what they did... By what, with what they had, when the time comes that the master shows up, the fact that they had it for that time period should have made a positive difference, is the idea. That's the assumption of the text. 
even if he did not give, the master did not give explicit directions at the time of his departure as far as what all he was looking for when he came, he really knew his servants had been with him long enough to know what was expected of them. In other words, they, he even says, you've been with me for a while, right? You should, you should know certain things. Obviously, two of them did. Two-thirds of the stewards in the, in the story, they intuitively knew this is the heart of the master. This is what I'm supposed to do. I don't need him to reiterate it every single time a new event comes up. You know, in, in the context of the brevity of life, James writes to believers. He's talking about, you know, our life is but a vapor. Remember that passage of Scripture there in James 4? So we need to be careful, right, as stewards of our life. But then he says this in verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, there's an intuitive knowledge and understanding, this is what I ought to do. And implied is pretty much in any circumstance I find myself in. If I, if I know, I have the ability to unlock, this is, and notice the word good there, instead of necessarily right. In other words, we, we sometimes think of what does God's law say? I must do this. This is what's required of me. But here is, hey, just do good. What is, what is the best in this any scenario? So for him that knows to do good and doeth it not, and here's the conclusion, to him personally in that situation, it is a what? It's sin. It's sin. So let's put it this way. It's not enough to not do the bad thing, but we must devote ourselves to always do which is best in our lives. In other words, if I know God is directing me, you know, we, we can somehow feel like we're squirming out as we rationalize things. I am, I am too good of a rationalizer sometimes to my own detriment spiritually. I can, I can come up with all kinds of excuses to make me feel better about not doing what I feel the Lord leading me to do in my life or what I can see principled in the Word of God that I should be doing. And it's, well, you know, there's a gospel opportunity to witness to this person, but, you know, they're on their phone. You know, maybe, maybe this isn't the best time. And yet I, 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 can, I can just sense that in this scenario, the good thing for me to do, what I ought to do, is, is, is maybe to see if I can strike up a conversation and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ with that person. But what do, what do we do sometimes? We come up with excuses. We squirm out of that in that way. In the context here, we need to also see that there is a disappointing dissimilarity of response. While every, the same thing was in, expected of all of them and anticipated by the Master, and he was fully coming back expecting that all three of them would have done the same thing. That is not what happened, in fact. The one servant seems to be cautious. Let's, let's say it as positively as we can. There's definitely caution. Is caution sometimes a good thing for us? We don't want to be reckless, right? 
That's not what we should be. That's a good trait to be cautious. But instead of being identified and praised as being cautious, he is condemned as being slothful. He, is, he, he goes right to what is really going on in the life of this servant. He essentially, this servant, and this is what's incredulous if you think about it, the servant then turns around and basically blames the master for the, cho- the bad choice that he has made. Well, I've ascertained there's something about you, master. You know, you're hard. You're a hard man to work for. And I read that and I thought, boy, this sounds really familiar. Where else have I read in the Bible that someone blames up the chain of command for bad choices that they have made? It goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity, doesn't it? There in the Garden of Eden, Adam sins. And we understand also sin, but the Bible makes that caveat, she was deceived. But there when God calls Adam on the carpet, what does he say? The woman thou gavest me, right? You say he's blaming Eve. He is, but who is he really blaming? It's the thou, right, in our King James. Thou gavest me. He's definitely pointing the finger back at God. You know, while some might think this is to show some some wisdom by his being cautious, it really is foolish. That which does not gain value in time essentially loses value. And, And this is an important thing for us to understand. Because Jesus is using in the illustration wealth, he's using wealth, right? We understand that. Well, if your money, let's talk about how it works right now, because it would have worked very similar back then. If today, if your money is in a savings account, and it doesn't keep up with the, what we call the COLA, the cost of living adjustments, then guess what's happening to your money? It's losing its what? It's losing its value. Exactly right. So for this reason, we have something like the Social Security Administration, and I know many of you in this room or listening by live stream, you know, some of your income, if not maybe your primary source of income, is coming from your Social Security check that you get. And so that's always something that's looked at. Well, this past October, the SSA announced that they were going to, in the coming year, raise the cost of living adjustment to 8.7%. They're going to raise that up. Is that raise actually, if it's a cost of living adjustment, the idea is we're just trying to keep people's money having the same purchase power that it had the previous year. Because if you haven't noticed, things cost more, right? We understand that. That's not just something that's happening in 2022. It would have been something that would have been true in Jesus' time as well. Now, maybe inflation didn't happen at the same rapid rate that it's going on now. But it basically always helps people to keep track, keep pace with the consumer price index, right? They're looking at all these, and you don't have to be an economist to understand this. You need more money if prices are going up just to keep even. By the way, that's one of the reasons why, you know, when we take a missionary on, 
we often regularly will raise their support level because even where they are, sometimes inflation's even worse in the foreign fields. So all that to say this, the man buries the currency in the ground. And so therefore, we don't know how long the master was gone, but even if it was just for a short period of time, the implications are it's not worth as much now as when he left. And that's why he says you could have at least put it out to the, uh, the lenders so that when I come back, I could have gained some interest on it. Might have been little, but there would have been some improvement to keep it from actually losing. And so we need to understand that when God entrusts something into our hands and we just sit on it, you know, we're not, we're not being good, caker, good caretakers of it. We're wasting it. We're wasting it. The third thing we, we learn here is the need to grasp the intensity of future reckoning. Here's, here's where it all uh, hits, and here's where things get very sober. The man claims a sense of fear. We could say respect is good, but there is an improper kind of fear, obviously, that's going on here. We could call it a, a misguided fear. He takes a wrong direction in his choices by misguided fear. That's what he says in verse 25. He claims that he was afraid. If he had really had a respectful fear, a reverential fear of his master, he would have been more industrious. He would have said, if I really do revere my master, I'm going to know his heartbeat. I'm going to know what his desires, his intentions are. And then I'm going to behave accordingly to that. Not how I envision my master to be. Do you realize that we have a problem in this planet that people envision God the way they want to envision him? And then they approach their worship or their interaction him based upon that perception, which is often incredibly misguided. They don't understand that. He should have been afraid to disappoint his master's expectations. He's really, again, blaming his master, much like Adam blamed God. The fault of the third servant is that he did not understand his master's aspirations. Hoping to avoid doing anything wrong, one commentator said, he finished up by not doing anything right. He wasted an opportunity. How sad that is. For the natural man that's thinking about this reckoning stage in the story, for an unsaved person who has not been born again, you say, well, what has God entrusted into their hands? Well, to all humanity, we've been entrusted God's general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. God has embedded in all humanity an awareness of His divine presence to some degree. And as Romans reminds us, there has to be a pressing down the truth. They say, this is not convenient for me to believe this. They have to suppress that. That's what's going on. And yet we need to realize that even that being placed into the minds and the hearts and the awareness of humanity 
as someone who has been made by God. They may not be a child of God. God has placed a talent, if you would. Something that they're responsible to do something with. How do you handle the truth you receive? If you're under the sound of my voice and you've heard the gospel, you've heard the truth about Jesus Christ, you look into this night sky and you see the stars. You look at the planet and you see intelligent design. You see an uncaused cause in an initial creator. Do you press it down because you're like, I don't want to think about someone owning me. I want to rule my own life. How foolish that is because you will face him someday. Your delusion will come to an end. You could be just as foolish to say, I don't believe in gravity and try to live life on planet Earth as if it didn't exist. It's there. The presence and the weight of a holy God is ever around us. Since this passage has a direct application to the Jews, it's good to point out that they had an advantage. All of them. And, of course, we know that many of the Jews did not follow Jesus. In fact, we could say even probably the vast majority of them did not follow Jesus. And still do not. And yet Paul says of his countrymen, of the Jewish people, when they're talking about advantage, he's like, what what advantage does someone have if they're born Jewish? And Paul says, well, there is some advantages. And in Romans 3, 2, He says, unto the Jewish people were committed the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? It's Scripture is another way of referring to it. God communicating His oral truth, which is then put down for us in written form, but God conveying, here's how to know me. Here's what I'm going to do. He didn't bring it to the Hittites. He didn't give it to the the descendants of Ishmael. He didn't give it to the Edomites. Who did he give it to? He gave it to the Jewish people. That is an incredible privilege, is it not? To realize that you have been entrusted the Word of God. And what a talent that was. And yet, at least in portions of Scripture, what do the Jewish people do? They bury that truth. You try to go through them and say, let me show you how Jesus of Nazareth is the exact fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. I mean, it's really, it's irrefutable when you look at all those passages and how how they are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Statistically, it's impossible, at the very least we would say highly improbable, that more than one person could fulfill all of those criteria as Jesus has. And so you say, so what do, they, what do they do? They just press it down. Because they've already come to the conclusion, I don't want to believe that. I don't want to accept Jesus. And so therefore I have to somehow disprove that, at least in my own mind. Many of you around the holiday season are around lost family members. And you get a little aggravated, and understandably so, because you witness to them, you share the gospel and you share things, and their responses, you recognize, are so illogical. They're so imbalanced, even. You you don't realize that you've become a little apologist, if you would. 
trying to explain in love and compassion the gospel, and you walk away in, in private, you go into the other room and you're like, oh, Lord, <laughs> you know, why don't they get it? The same reason this man buries his talent. Improper fear. Is it not interesting that the first description of those that will find themselves in the lake of fire in Revelation 21, verse 8, there's eight categories of people, but it says the fearful are cast into the lake of fire. That always kind of confused me because you think of fear as sort of a victim response, right? I can't help that I'm afraid. Someone goes, boo, and I'm scared. But that kind of fearfulness is an improper fear. Fearing I'm going to have to give, relinquish control of my life. Fear of what the popular people will say about me. There are people that have the wrong focus of fear. They're going to fill the lake of fire someday, folks. And maybe you're here today. And there's something that you're afraid of by coming to Christ as your Savior. Friend, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross to save you from your sin. He wants to bless you with an abundant life. And yes, being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ in your lost condition does not seem very attractive. But let me tell you, as one who has been in bondage to Him since I was 12 years old, I don't regret one day of serving a kind and caring and loving Master. The point of the parable is to depict the terrible confrontation for some when Christ returns. The hope is that the reader will have teachable spirits. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 11, it says, When the scorner is punished, the person that's rejecting truth, when that person has consequences for that life of action, when there's finally confrontation on that person, what happens? It says, the simple is made wise. And by simple, that's not necessarily a slam on that person. It's just simply saying, the uninformed. You're looking at this and like, whoa, look what happened to that guy, right? And, and so if you're uninformed, hopefully you wise up. We've ever heard that phrase? You probably have said that. It comes from this idea. You know, something happens and you look. And, and if you came from a family with siblings, there's probably been times that mom or dad had to discipline a brother or sister, and then all of a sudden, you know, the rest of the children become angelic for at least a moment of time, right? Or maybe you didn't even realize it, but subconsciously say, that isn't going to be me. That's what we're talking about here, Right? The scorners punish the simple who is uninformed is made wise. But what about if you already have truth? The next part says, and when the wise, you already have some truth, is instructed, he received knowledge. In other words, no matter how much intellect and how much information you have, there's always room to grow, right? So the point is, in this text, in Proverbs 21.11, is that readers need to have teachable spirits. That's one of the things that I'm always looking for in people. You know, if, if someone feels like, hey, I've got life figured out, there's nothing that you can show me, you know, 
I could probably share, tell you a few things, you know. What you really want for someone that, especially if you're called to manage them or they're called to help serve you, you want to help, you want to hope that they have a teachable spirit. I haven't figured it out. I want to grow. There's room for improvement. Folks, that's me. I, you know, I think back on all the Lord has shown me and I, to quote Charlie Brown, the more I learn, the more I learn how much I have to learn. It's very true. In either case, the unfortunate experience of another should benefit the observer by either introducing truth or increasing truth. Now, the beauty is Jesus is telling us about something that is going to be history someday, because that's what prophecy is. It's history that hasn't been accomplished yet. And so there is a chance to avoid what seems like the inevitable. Now, it's, you're not going to avoid the fact that Jesus is coming again, and there's going to be a reckoning, but it's kind of like reading the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah, go and preach to Nineveh because I'm going to destroy the city. But in fact, they repent, and God doesn't destroy the city. There is a chance for repentance and restoration. And so we need to understand on an individual level, there is room for repentance and reconciliation to the Master. And if you're here today as an unsaved person who's not been born again, and you've been given the talent of general revelation, and maybe even special revelation as you've heard Scripture taught, and, you, and I have met some people who are lost, but they could tell me the gospel. They could explain what... I believe about how a person is born again. And yet they themselves have not received, and that's the important part. But as many as receive Him, He gives the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Hey, Satan could give the plan of salvation, folks. He's not an idiot. He knows it intellectually. But he doesn't receive the Son of God. And so... If you're here today or you're listening to my voice and you've not yet taken that talent of truth and used it as God has intended, friend, repent and come to Christ before the reckoning makes it too late. If you are a believer, a child of God, perhaps you realize I have not been a good steward of the opportunities divine appointments, the skill sets that the Lord has given to me as one of His children. I don't want to just sit on what I have. I want to use it wisely because I have a healthy reverence for the heart of my God. See, David was a man after God's own heart. He had a fear because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. We understand that, that respect. We know God's, we want to know God's heart and we want to respond to that. And then there's a joy. There's not an intrepidation. There is a peace and a fulfillment. I get to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord has not yet returned, but He will. It's absolutely certain. There's no question. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to adjust your course. 
Friend, be wise and respond. Father in heaven, thank you for your words. Thank you for truth. Lord, as it's been laid in our lap, as it's been placed in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, may we see ourselves as stewards. May we recognize the truth, the abilities, the opportunities that are ours. May we do some very careful self-examination and evaluation. Lord, may we be transparent. May we be teachable. May we not be hard-hearted. May we not be scorners. May we be informed if we're simple. May we increase our instruction if we have some wisdom. Lord, I pray that we be rightly related to the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming again someday. That it might be with joy and anticipation and not with sorrow and grievance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friend, today, God longs for you to be drawn near to Him. He wants that relationship. He is, again, pictured as that father in the prodigal son parable, waiting for the son to come. Are you away from the Lord? Are you a natural man, natural lady who's never been born again? Don't bury that talent of truth that you've received today. Invest it in the response of repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. If you're a Christian and you realize that you have been negligent with what God has entrusted in your hands, what a great opportunity for us to confess and ask God for wisdom and how to handle what we have in this life so that we may give account with joy and not with grief someday. And so as the instruments play, this will be a time of response. The front will be open if you want to come and have a time of prayer. You're welcome to. You can do business with God there in your seat. But as the Spirit of God works through His Word, I hope that you will not quench what the Spirit of God is doing. I hope you'll respond.